This is Cornelius R. Stam of Chicago, and this is being recorded on May 20th, 1984. By God's grace, I shall be 76 next week. My dear wife Ruth has urged me again and again to record some of the details of my journey through life, especially for her side of the family, my newly acquired and dearly beloved Frizanes, Ken, Grace, and Kathy. She feels that this would be an inspiration to them. Well, I've never been much for biographies or autobiographies because they tend to tell all that's good and none of the bad, or to tell the bad in the best possible light. Yet I agree that it might be a blessing to these dear ones to know some of the truly wonderful things that God has done for this poor sinner saved by grace. So this tape will contain some of my memoirs told in a rambling, informal way. My father, Peter Stam, was born in the Netherlands in May 1866, 118 years ago. He was an old country comedian, brought up in show business since his father ran a theater in Atzunt, North Holland. For a time he traveled the Low Countries, Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg, making people laugh, but all too often with a heavy, troubled heart inside. Dad didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ in those days, and he has often testified that never once did he hear the gospel preached in Holland. They had no radio or TV in those days, and very little gospel literature. Indeed, the nearby state church was so liberal that on Sundays they alternated between a Protestant minister, a Catholic priest, and a Jewish rabbi, one each Sunday. In 1889, at the age of 23, Dad came to America, and to have some sort of an anchor in this great strange land, he took up boarding with a Dutch family in Patterson, New Jersey, which was fine, except for one thing. They read the Bible at every evening meal. As we look back, we have the feeling that they must have chosen special passages just for him for he actually came to hate that book. This regular reading of the Bible convicted him, evidently. At one point he remarked, According to that book, nobody's any good. And finally he told the father of the household, I don't pay board money to hear that book read. And with that, he left them and sought boarding some miles away. To get away from the Bible and to learn English faster, he took up lodging with an English-speaking family in Hackensack, New Jersey. And indeed, he did now begin to learn English much faster. But the Lord in grace had said, as he did in the case of Major Andre, Almighty love, arrest that man. So it came to pass that one fourth of July he sat on a park bench reading a magazine. Not understanding a certain word, he went to an old lady on the other end of the bench and asked her what the word meant. She explained and said, You're a Hollander, aren't you? Yes, he replied. Trying to learn English? Yes. Well, I have a book just meant for you. It has two columns on each page. The left column is in Dutch. You can understand that. Then you go to the other column, and you'll find the same thing printed in English, and it'll help you to understand that. It's printed especially for immigrants like you. 
I'll be glad to give it to you if you'll come and get it. Dad was elated. Gratefully and eagerly he went to her home that night and returned with this book under his arm. Now he could make real progress with English. It wasn't long, though, before it dawned on him. Ah, oh, this is the Bible again. And often he's told us how nearly he came to throwing that book right into the garbage can. He said, I don't have to be insulted this way. What's so bad about me? What's so wrong with me? I've always been moral and worked hard. Why do I have to read this? But he did so want to learn English. So, by the grace of God, he continued. To make a long story short, Dad's reading of a Dutch-English New Testament, first the Gospels, then the Acts, then the Epistles of Paul, and so forth, led him to trust Christ as his own Savior. Now he began to love that book, trusting Christ for himself and rejoicing not only in the knowledge, but in the assurance of salvation. His whole life was revolutionized, and almost immediately he began to tell everybody that he was saved and how to be saved. And the next thing, of course, was to join a church. Dad had no idea that the names of these churches had special meanings, Baptists, Presbyterians, Reformed, Methodists, Lutheran, and so on. He didn't know that these were all the results of sad divisions among God's people, mostly over God's Word. He thought they were just names like Philadelphia, Chicago, and Schenectady. So he chose one, a Christian Reformed church near his home, and went to the pastor and said, I'd like to become a member of your church. Why, asked the pastor, because I've been saved, he said. I'm a Christian now. My dear young man, said the pastor, putting his hand on his shoulder, do be careful. I found in my experience that so often those who are most sure of themselves are farthest from the kingdom. Think of that. I should say that by this time Dad had married a God-fearing young woman, and we have reason to believe that she was more than God-fearing, that she was truly saved, born again. So Dad said to the pastor, We'll do anything necessary. Take a course or go to catechism or anything, for we do want to join your church. All right, said the pastor finally. You come to church for a while, and then we'll talk further about it. Now, in that church, the Ten Commandments were read every Sabbath day, they called it, without one word from Paul's epistles explaining what happened to the Ten Commandments and to the law in general. You can imagine what the preaching was like. Not very exciting. Finally, however, Dad and Mother did join this church, but for all the years they attended, they were the only ones in the whole congregation who rejoiced in a no-so salvation. <clears throat> Meantime, Dad's daily work was going well. First as a carpenter's helper, then as a carpenter, then a builder, and before it was all over, he was a successful contractor and lumber dealer. He built about half the houses in Prospect Park, a large Patterson suburb. And a friend of his built the other half. I can still, still tell who built what. 
But returning to his earlier days as a Christian, he soon felt that being saved and telling others about Christ was not enough. He felt he should do more. So he rented a store on Patterson's River Street, and there he started a small gospel mission. I must hurry, but he was only 50 years old when he retired to give his full time to the work of the Lord in city mission work. He contributed $19,000 of his own money, and that was a lot in those days, to invest in a big livery stable on Broadway in Patterson. It, uh, it had a 125-foot frontage and was two stories high, so it wasn't a small building. Dad and his helpers gutted the whole thing and rebuilt it into the well-known Star of Hope mission. It had a suite of five rooms for the assistant superintendent. It had 12 private rooms for the workers. It had two meeting rooms that seated a 100 each for smaller audiences. It had an auditorium that seated some 500 people, but by putting chairs in the wide aisles and adding the balconies and the two smaller auditoriums, we've often had over 900 people in our audiences. We also had a mother's sewing class, a sewing class for girls, classes in basketry for boys, a clothes dispensary, and the Bible in over 40 languages since Patterson was such a cosmopolitan city. And, believe it or not, we had an average of 31 meetings a week, 42 in the summer and 22 in the winter. Imagine two evenings weekly with four open-air meetings each. On Saturdays, we had four meetings at the same time with about 10 volunteers at each meeting. That's about 40 altogether. When you had shouted your voice hoarse at one meeting, you'd walk over to another. We'd crisscross this way to keep the meetings well, well manned. <clears throat> On Tuesday nights, we had four open-air meetings in succession, mostly with our young people. We'd start at 6 p.m. and go with some 20 of us in four or five cars. First, we'd go, say, to the Italian section and have a 55-minute service. Then, as most of us got into our cars, one carload remained behind to deal with those who seemed interested. The other cars would go, say, to the Polish section and hold a 55-minute meeting there during which the one car from the Italian section could catch up with us. Then we'd leave a different car behind, and the others would go, say, to the German section, while the one from the Polish section would catch up with us, and so on. After the last meeting, we'd all meet at the Star of Hope Mission for prayer and a parting song. <clears throat> I've often wondered whether any group anywhere in the world ever sang Praise God from whom all blessings flow like we did. We were so happy and thrilled over the meetings we'd had and the personal encounters. Well, <clears throat> Dad was a great inspiration to us in this work. For one thing, he had spunk. And you do need some spunk to go out with the gospel of the grace of God. At one time, at a street meeting, a police officer made it hard for us, and Dad asked the officer his name. When he wouldn't give it to him, Dad simply turned to the crowd and asked, 
Does anybody here know this officer's name? That did it. The officer said, forget it, and he left. There are other such stories I could tell, but I'd better not start that now. The Starvoke mission was not, strictly speaking, a rescue mission. We did help those whom Dad called the worthy poor, many of them. But basically, it was more of a Bible teaching and gospel center. Hundreds came to hear the word of God expounded by great Bible teachers like Ironside, Gabeline, Pettengill, Newell, Gray, Gregg, Barnhouse, Ottman, Schaefer, and others. Also, we had many widely known missionaries with us. Mrs. Howard Taylor, the daughter of Hudson Taylor, the founder of the big China Inland Mission. Also, Bill Pontier of Africa, and Dr. Lambie, the African missionary whose great toe was once so badly infected that he had to pull his own toenail. Try that. And that firebrand, Dr. Strachan, was another, the founder of the Latin America Evangelization Campaign, and many others. All these people enjoyed staying at our home because, by now, we had a big house. Dad and mother had eight children. Dad always said he had two and a half dozen children, and that was true. Two and a half dozen. Add them up. When mother and dad had learned the secret of not over-entertaining guests, and all these preachers and missionaries enjoyed staying in our guest room with his lovely porch outside overlooking the city, and his anteroom next door with desk, typewriter, reference books, and so on, where they could study in a quiet atmosphere. Of one thing I'm certain, that the great missionary thrust of the early 90s, when thousands of missionaries went to foreign lands to carry the gospel, was the direct result of all the Bible teaching, and particularly of the recovery of the blessed truth of that blessed hope, the rapture of the church, being recovered by men of God like I've mentioned. At the Star of Hope, as uh, at fundamentalist churches all over the country, capacity audiences were gathering to hear the Word of God expounded. They come, Bibles in hand, to see whether these things were so. Those were days of great theological controversy and of live, active churches. This, I feel, was America's last real revival not of various forms of entertainment, religious entertainment, but of true, heartfelt Bible study by groups of old and young alike, and all kinds of evangelistic work, all without the entertainment that generally accompanies evangelism today to get crowds. Besides dad and mother, our family now consisted of Peter, the oldest, then Clazina, Henry, Jacob, Harry, John, and I, and our youngest sister, Amelia. And as I've said, there were books in almost every room. Dad encouraged good reading, not novels, Bible study books. He had first bought the books we ought to have, and later we became well acquainted with the second-hand bookstores of New York. Why second-hand bookstores? Because they were cheaper? No, because there one could get the better books, 
by Howson, Anderson, Hodge, and others. John and I had rival libraries that I think some pastors today might envy. In fact, my own library today has books like those referred to in the opening pages of the Schofield Reference Bible. If you haven't read that, you should. And very little of the superficial writings that fill Christian bookstores today. We lived in the highest house in Patterson, overlooking the city. It had ten rooms on what I'd have to call the second and third floors, because the first floor contained the offices of the lumber yard and contracting business, and the attic contained several rooms which could be used for overflow company. But the family, and speaker guests, if you please, occupied floors two and three. How we stand, children, must thank God for the coming of these gifted teachers and missionaries to our home, and so consecrated. They never talked about money or asked what they were going to get. This atmosphere was good for us. We heard the Word of God discussed by these truly great students of the Word, and the missionary emphasis, too, was good for us. One brother, John, as some of you know, went to China, where he and his wife, Betty, were slain as martyrs for Christ, both brutally beheaded by communists. Harry, another brother, became a missionary to Africa, where he spent some 35 years, with another 10 years or so, at the head of the missions department in a Christian college. Peter was, most of his life, connected with Christian colleges as dean, instructor, or both, at a time, mind you, when Christian colleges were more sound than, I'm afraid, most of them are today. For 18 years, he was the head of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College in Illinois. Getting back to the great men of God who visited our home, most of my brothers had married by the time our Bible conferences reached their zenith and John had gone to Moody and then to China. So I was the fortunate boy for some years who got to enjoy the many dinner conversations and discussions on doctrinal matters. A great deal was to be learned from these keen students of the Word. And yet there was one thing that troubled me, and Dad too, and he let them know it. You see, our whole family of ten had been excommunicated from our denomination because we believed in the imminent rapture of the church to be with Christ. And the Baptist pastor from whom we had learned this would not accept us because we hadn't been immersed. This led us into a more thorough study of water baptism with the result that some of us, about half, were led to conclude that the so-called Great Commission to the Twelve and uh, water baptism does not belong to God's program for the present dispensation of grace. And this, in turn, led us into that great body of truth which Paul calls the mystery. Now, the men of God I've referred to showed keen insight as they discussed the Scriptures, but there was one subject on which they were far from agreed, in which... Uh, indeed, they seem confused. That was the so-called Great Commission, with its miraculous signs, 
its particular message, and its baptism. Dad broached many questions as gently as he could, but clear answers were not forthcoming, and uh, much disagreement among the Bible teachers. For example, Dr. Barnhouse expressed surprise one time that Dad would invite Dr. Gabeline to preach at the Star of Hope Mission. Do you know, asked Dr. Barnhouse, what Dr. Gabeline believes on water baptism? And others would ask such questions about still others. But God used the confusion on this subject to prepare us to understand more clearly the greater commission given to Paul with its one body and one baptism. In those days, Erling C. Olson was the head of Fitch Investors Service of New York City, the second largest in the country. Erling was a dear man and a dear friend of the family who led us to see still more clearly the distinctiveness of Paul's apostleship and of the gospel of the grace of God and our day as the dispensation of the grace of God. Through his efforts, I received a pretty solid foundation in dispensational truth. We had a lot of good times with Erling, too. One year he took the whole family out on his 65-foot sloop, a truly beautiful sailboat. There were 21 of us, plus Erling and a crew of four. I'll never forget that day. The sea was very rough, and some of us wondered whether we really wanted to go. But Mother, who had been across 13 times, said, I'm game, and so all the rest of us had better be. I recall climbing from the tender into the boat, for these vessels just didn't stand still. While one was up on the waves, the other was down, and vice versa, and it was quite a trick to, stamble, to scramble aboard. They lashed Mother to the railing and gave us all raincoats, telling us just to hang on to the ropes for dear life. As the boat rolled, it seemed that Mother would roll right over into the sea. But she positively loved it. And when the boat pitched, about a third of it would become drenched. So we had to hang on tight until, as they had predicted, the sea calmed down. Then, what a perfectly beautiful day we had sailing across from Larchmont, New York, to Oyster Bay on Long Island where the crew broke out with a lovely lunch. The next year, Erling got an even larger boat, and for several years we were taken on these sailboat rides, which none of us ever will forget. The reason Mother had been across the Atlantic 13 times was simple. Dad had been across 13 times. The reason? Dad was so eager that his dad, my grandfather, should come to know Christ. And also, he started three missions in Holland during those visits. The family in Holland had written about Grandpa. They said, something's wrong with Grandpa. He locks the door to his room evenings and just stays there until he goes to bed. Otherwise, he's all right. <clears throat> well, Dad suspected. He must be up there reading his Bible. Grandpa knew what a change the Bible had made in Dad's life. So we all prayed much, and Dad took one more trip to Holland, his last. And on that trip, Grandpa was gloriously converted. And sell the saloon? Nothing doing. 
he took all the liquor and poured it down the canal across the street and let it ride out to sea. That was the end of that. He was bearing his first strong testimony to the neighbors. Going back to ocean travel, I should say that from his youth, Dad had much to do with ships, even ocean liners. When he was a teenager, the older brothers would buy and drag into the canal some ocean-going vessel, and then would take it apart and sell the parts. That's the business they were in. Later in America, Dad was used to help many immigrants from Holland, France, Germany, and elsewhere to find lodging and get settled in America. Thus he got to know ships and often their captains, and so did we, uh, we youngsters. I can recall just offhand the Italian wrecks, the German Bremen, and the Europa, and that beautiful, beautiful French Normandy. I used to think that that was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen at sea, and I think it certainly was the most beautiful ocean liner. Then there was the Ile de France and the British Canard liners, then British, the Carmania, the Berengaria, the Aquitania, the Mauritania, both Queens, Mary and Elizabeth, the first ones, of course, and the Dutch liners, the Noordam, the Rijndam, the Rotterdam, the Veendam, the Volendam, the Statendam, the New Amsterdam, and others, and, of course, the American liners. We've been on most of these and were familiar with others. We stam children, or some of us, often accompanied Dad as he went either to see missionaries off or to meet immigrants who needed help. I could tell many an interesting story here, but we better settle for just one. Dad and Mother were on that last trip to Holland on the Dutch liner Volendam. One morning, as they left their stateroom, two of the ship's officers stood outside waiting to escort them down to the dining room. Now what's this, thought Dad. As they descended the large curved stairway, there was the captain's table with a big white cake and two candles burning on it. Then the orchestra struck up, Lungs allas a-leaving in America, or They'll Live Long in America. You see, a pair of twins had been born to Betty, Henry's wife, and they had informed the ship by wireless. What a lovely way to receive such news. We had many opportunities to witness for Christ on these liners, and sometimes Dad even arranged for special meetings aboard. One time, as the liner was being slowly pushed from the pier, 34 of us stood singing farewell hymns. Oh, am I... Soon the captain came to the bridge and called down in broken English, You have any Holland songs? Uh, do you have any Holland songs? Yes, indeed we did, for most of us were Holland descent. So we sang an old Holland hymn which ran, Pull, sailor, pull, sailor, pull for the shore. Then we introduced the captain to Dad, who was just under him on the deck below. And so Dad got to know another captain. He knew many of them. Indeed, with their help, we had many a gospel meeting right on board ship. Just four of us stams are still on earth at this time. Peter, who's 92, I believe, Clazina, almost 90, Amelia, 72, and I. Talking with Clazina, 90, over the phone, 
you'd think she was 50. She's so young in her outlook and so happy in the Lord. I've said that all of us were saved at early ages uh, and uh, used to a considerable extent in the Lord's work. I can't help but feel that this was under God largely due to the inspiration of two exceptional parents. Mother and dad were something. I don't remember them ever, ever quarreling. And the rest of us have said the same thing. If we asked dad, can I do so-and-so? He'd say, have you asked mother? Or if we asked mother, he'd say, or she'd say, have you asked dad? And both were firm, yet very affectionate disciplinarians. We boys got spanked when we needed it, and sometimes spanked hard by dad or even by mother. But not the girls, of course. They were treated in a different way. But certainly dad and mother did not believe and disciplined by indulgence, as so many do. And I, for one, have often thanked God for that. And we were sure not to get what we cried for. And you know, that saved a lot of aggravation around the house. For if a family of ten uh, are going to have any converse whatsoever, you can't have several children crying. Now, will you turn over your tape, please? Each of us, in turn, had to learn to wash dishes, make beds, dust, sweep the sidewalks, and so on. With Dad off and away, Mother was the commander-in-chief of this young army, and yet so sweet, she was the sweetest lady. She came from a poor background in Rotterdam, yet had a certain refinement about her that was beautiful to observe, and she had a lot of faith and courage, too. After John and Betty had been murdered, and all the shock and excitement connected with that. I can recall just offhand the Italian Rex and the German Bremen and Europa, and that beautiful, beautiful French Normandy, later changed to government service and called the Lafayette. But the Normandy, I used to think, was the most beautiful ocean-going vessel I had ever seen and it was probably the most beautiful of its day. <clears throat> then there was the Ile de France, also beautiful, and the British canard liners, the Carmania, the Berengaria, the Aquitania, the Mauritania. Now with a large family, you can imagine that we all had to pitch in and help. Each of us, in turn, had to learn to wash dishes, make beds, dust, sweep the sidewalks, and so on. With that off and away, Mother was the commander-in-chief of this young army. Yet so sweet, she was the sweetest lady. She came from a poor background in Rotterdam, yet had a certain refinement about her that was beautiful to observe. And she had a lot of faith and courage, too. I remember after John and Betty had been murdered and all the shock and excitement connected with that event, she came down one morning to the kitchen where we all had breakfast, and standing in the doorway, she straightened out her apron and said simply, Now, as if to say, Come on, let's start all over again. Dad gave us much to wean us away from worldly interests. We never, none of us ever longed to go to movies, uh, to the movie theater. For one thing, 
we all had to learn to play at least two musical instruments, so that we had quite an orchestra among us. I got to play trombone, and if you'll forgive me, I really did that well. I used it to a great deal in the Lord's work and enjoyed leading audiences in singing. I also played the baritone and some cello and piano. Now, this emphasis on music made for good fellowship among us. Also, Dad and Mother were truly godly people. We began every day with prayer. And uh, because of Dad's background and what it had done for him, we read the Bible at every meal before we partook of food. And we had prayer and Bible reading at bedtime. I don't remember that I ever felt it was dull. I don't think my brothers and sisters did. I think perhaps Dad, Dad saw to that. I've said we were all saved at early ages, but I haven't told you about my own conversion. John and I were both deeply under conviction in our mid-teens. And one Sunday evening as we went to the meeting at the Star of Hope Mission, and by the way, we never asked or were asked if we wanted to go, we went. But this time, we went by a roundabout way so as to avoid the open-air meeting on Main Street. Not being saved, this embarrassed us. At the mission later, blind Pastor Houston was the speaker, and he preached with great spiritual power. When he finished, John and I were more deeply convicted than ever, and we were afraid he might give an invitation, so we slipped out during the last hymn. On the way home, we didn't say one word to each other. A bit later, though, Dad arrived at home, and the phone rang. Now, in those days, the ladies had sort of a women's union. <laughs> the women would call each other if their children stepped out of line. It was a good idea. This time, Dad answered the phone, and a woman said, Mr. Stam, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but I'm afraid John and Neil have been drinking. I saw them come home, and both of them were staggering. You know, we were so under conviction by the Holy Spirit that we were unsteady on our feet. We practically staggered home. How easy that made it for Dad and our brothers to lead us to the Lord. I was already a hard-working boy at this time. I've been a hard-working boy all my life, I think. I never made it to high school, but I did skip two grades in grammar school. So I started working at Patterson's Bank of America when I had just turned 13. A few years later, I switched to the Citizens Trust Company. Fewer boys went to high school in those days, and fewer still to college. The families needed the money. But soon I began working nights at the Star of Hope Mission, and finally full-time. Never after that did I ever apply for any position of any kind, business, pastoral, evangelistic, or otherwise. The Lord just seemed to open one door after another. There were just things that needed doing. And beside the street meetings at the Star of Hope, there were the meetings at the institutions, the isolation hospital, the TB sanatorium, the almshouse, the prison, and so forth. And the Star of Hope always had from 12 to 24 full-time workers going out and doing their work for the Lord. At first, John and I had to be there at 5 a.m. That's what I said, 5 in the morning, 
to get the big furnace stoked. Uh, a building two stories high with a frontage of 125 feet and some 70 feet deep naturally had a big furnace. And we had to shovel coal and throw it far back into the hamper and then bed it down again at night. One thing that did me a great deal of good later was the house-to-house visitation. It helped me not to be afraid of people. At one time, a young man named Henry Senf, S-E-N-F, worked there, and he and I went from house to house together for three years, five days a week, trying to reach every home in Patterson with the gospel. A simple question, do you have a Bible, generally started a conversation easily. When no one was at home, we marked it on our big city map and returned later. At first, I was actually afraid to start each morning, but didn't want to quit at the end of the day. We had had such blessed times, and all with strangers. And interestingly, we had the best opportunities and the best times of witnessing at Patterson's swanky east side. We had left that section for last, frankly, because we didn't exactly relish being greeted at the door by a servant who we thought uh, would try to hinder us from seeing the people who lived there. But we had attractive cards made up, and soon we were being invited into the homes of the wealthy with many an opportunity to witness for Christ. It seemed we found more open hearts there than anywhere else, and some were one to Christ. Senef was a wonderful friend and co-worker. I shall never forget him. He was a great blessing to me. Later he went to Africa, to Congo, as a missionary. Soon I was asked by Dad to start writing thank you letters for gifts sent in. Dad was not a college man, but he had worked hard to learn English and wanted us to speak it well and to write it well. I hadn't cared for English in grade school. In fact, I didn't like the subject. But Dad got me to love it. One day he gave me a book containing correspondence by the women of Revolutionary Days, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and others, about the most mundane matters, the bringing up of children, baking, cooking, yard work, and so on but all written in such elegant English that they made the most interesting reading, all expressed so well. In addition, as I've said, Dad made sure that we had lots of the right kind of books at home, mostly Bible commentaries and books by great Christian writers. And I got so I devoured these. Another big help was our weekly home gospel meeting. During the day, our house-to-house workers would look for opportunities and try to make arrangements for evening meetings in the homes of interested people. Then, on Thursday evenings, there would be some 40 volunteers and and, uh, regular workers, and Dad would sit up front, looking the audience over and dividing this group into smaller groups of four or five, with a leader for each and the others to help with their testimonies. This gave me a good start at Bible teaching. I loved the study of the Word, and with the help of many good books on the Bible, I got to enjoy these meetings no end, especially when the Lord gave us precious souls. 
One year, when Dad and Mother were away to Holland, John and I had an idea. We went to the big new Va uh, Valley View Sanatorium for TB patients and contacted the Physician-in-Chief, as he was called. We showed him pictures of the work of the Star of Hope and copies of the recommendations we had received from chiefs of police, mayors, and so forth. Result? He was overjoyed. We were just what he had been looking for, and without delay he appointed us the chaplains, as it were, of the institution. We were given a beautiful studio from which to broadcast to the patients, and then we could visit them from room to room. The patients had earphones, and it often touched us, uh, individuals, as we walked through the corridors during meeting time to see those patients listening so intently. One time, Dad, when Dad had returned from Holland, we found four quarters of a stage piled right in front of the mic. Evidently they were going to have some kind of show that night. Then a funny thing happened. The only thing to do was to broadcast from the top of the pile, for the room was so arranged that that seemed the only possibility. The trouble was that my brother John had been introduced to sing a selection entitled, He Will Not Let Me Fall. And as he began to speak, the whole thing seemed so ludicrous that one after another of us started giggling, even Dad, so that we, he simply ran over and pulled the plug. Later we started over again and explained to our listeners, letting them in on the fun. Good wholesome humor does help in the Lord's work, otherwise embarrassment could sometimes turn to frustration. I had never dreamed I'd ever be a pastor or a writer to any degree, but the Lord evidently had that in store for me. First, for 13 years I served as pastor of a beloved group known now as the Preakness Bible Church in Wayne, New Jersey. Then it was the, the Preakness Community Church, I believe. After 13 years with these beloved people, I was called by Pastor O'Hare and the Worldwide Grace Testimony into a traveling minister. The idea was to get the growing number of grace pastors and churches to know one another and to unify them in some way. During these three years, 1942 to 1945, Mrs. Stam and I traveled every state in the Union and four provinces of Canada, proclaiming the gospel of the grace of God, and teaching the word. It was Pastor Herman Rich of the First Church of the Fundamentals in Evansville, Indiana, who, with his board, invited us to conduct a National Grace Conference. At his Thus, at his church, was formed the Grace Gospel Fellowship, a national organization of grace believers. Pastor Rich has gotten almost no credit for this, but he was the one who had the faith to take the first step, and from this conference sprang Milwaukee Bible Institute, also largely from his urging. Milwaukee Bible Institute soon became Milwaukee Bible College and finally Grace Bible College of Grand Rapids, Michigan. In 1945, I joined uh, Pastor Charles F. Baker in establishing the Milwaukee Bible Institute.
I promised to stay for two years, but continued with Mr. Baker for five, from 1945 to 1950. Pastor Baker was president and instructor, and I dean and instructor, with 13 hours of teaching each week. And, beloved, that's 39 hours of study and marking papers each week, because we had to blaze some trails. At that time, we had no textbooks on what we believed dispensationally, and this affected several or most of our courses. Indeed, some of my books uh, that we have uh, here at BBS now are really textbooks which I composed for these classes. Though I had pulled up stakes, uh, as it were, to come to Milwaukee from Patterson, New Jersey, I was still responsible all this time for the ministries of the Berean Searchlight, and this was really too much, so that after resigning from Milwaukee Bible Institute, I had two heart attacks from which it took about a year and a half to slowly recover. But to explain the Berean searchlight, we should go back to the years in New Jersey. I had asked the board of Preakness Bible Church to let me use the back of every weekly bulletin exclusively for a printed Bible study. They gladly granted this, and almost immediately the idea took hold and spontaneously copies of our bulletin were being distributed widely. The milkman in our congregation left them with his milk deliveries. The member of a big city sewing class took 60 with her to give to the other members, and so on. And soon we had a list of 700 to prepare for distribution each week. And within a short time it grew to be 1,600, and it just kept growing. Then some of the men of the church came to me, and asked whether I would be willing to begin publishing a small Bible study magazine as its editor if they supplied the funds. This was a real challenge, which I accepted without hesitation. We got two small presses and put them in the basement of the church, and two young men of our congregation printed the searchlight for, I believe, the first six years, first eight pages, then 16, and so on. Then it all just seemed to grow, and we added wire-recorded messages to the one broadcast I had conducted for over ten years, and all this continued as our responsibility after I got to Milwaukee, so you can understand why the additional hours at school were just too much, and I had to resign after five years. I did love those dear young people, though, and I loved teaching and studying uh, the Word of God. I guess the Spirit was willing, but the flesh couldn't take it. I thank God for the help I had in those days, though. My secretary in Milwaukee, Miss Marie Reynolds, was very faithful and got others to help, too. And somehow we got the magazine and the recordings done on time, until finally, in 1952, the Berean Searchlight became the Berean Bible Society. Due, the ex due to the expansion of the ministries of the searchlight. It had been uh, incorporated before, but now we were reincorporated as a nonprofit organization. The other one had been too, but as the Berean Bible Society. And then we moved to Chicago. During most of the years in Milwaukee, I had had two meetings a week 
in Wheaton and Chicago, in addition to all the rest. And uh, uh, both classes soon became organized churches. There was the Lombard Bible Church from our Wheaton class, and the Park Ridge Bible Church from our Northwest Chicago Bible class. And both churches are still carrying on. Both have been enlarged, too. Thus, when we got to Chicago at a fine building on Belmont Avenue, there were dear folks ready to help, and especially from the, near wide, uh, from the nearby Norwood Bible Church, as it was called then. These people meant much to me in this growing ministry. In fact, two men from Norwood and Park Ridge helped in getting the building we purchased in Chicago. Since that time, our headquarters have been enlarged twice. First from 25 feet frontage to 75 feet, and then later to 125 feet. Those who have been here visiting BBS lately can see how both the building and the ministry have grown. The searchlight goes into every state in the Union, plus some 70 foreign countries. We have about 125 broadcast in the USA, plus one reaching into the mainland China and other Far Eastern countries. Also, a newspaper column, Two Minutes with the Bible, uh, run in newspapers all over the country with about 7 million readers. Also, a tape ministry reaching into many states and some foreign countries. But all this has, by the grace of God, been a direct outgrowth of the searchlight and our written ministry. I've written so far 21 library-sized books and over the past 44 years hundreds of short articles appearing in the searchlight and in smaller booklets. The response has surely exceeded our expectations. I've never considered myself a great writer by any means. In fact, writing has always been difficult for me. But I do love to dig into that blessed book and put my findings down on paper, and God graciously has blessed. Every, every working day here, we're thrilled to receive letters from people who are just beginning to see the glory of what Paul calls the mystery, that sacred secret revealed to him by the Lord in glory to make known to us. I had often talked to a young businessman about the mystery, and then again and, and again he'd say, I can see that. But I could tell he didn't see, the, certainly didn't get the whole picture. He didn't put the pieces of the puzzle together until one night, as I was about to speak at a church from a large Bible chart. That chart, by the way, appears in Things That Differ on page 192. After just standing at the rear of the church, studying that chart for a while, he hurried up to the front where I was sitting. You'd think the front of the church was on fire. And he just talked for a while. Finally, he asked, Is this what you've been trying to drum into this thick skull all these years? He had just really seen it, and he was overwhelmed. The next day he came to our home and said, I've been so filled emotionally today I could hardly work. And that's how it often goes. Often it makes me think of Paul's word in Colossians 2, 1 and 2, where he says about his uh, persecutions in making this message known. 
I would that ye knew what conflict I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for many as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now listen. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and knit together unto the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement, and that's the word epignosis, full knowledge, of the mystery. Of all the Bible says about full assurance, surely the full assurance of understanding is the most precious. <clears throat> to all this writing, teaching, preaching, and so on, engaged in through the years, I should add a short stint of two years, 95, 1959 and 1960, at Chicago's North Shore Church as successor to Pastor J.C. O'Hare. How I love that ministry and the dear people there. But again, I had to resign after two years. I had only promised one because I knew how much the work of the Berean Bible Society took out of me. So I had to resign this precious ministry uh, also. I wish I had time to discuss at length the faithful help received from my fellow workers here at Berean Bible Society. I think of several very efficient secretaries. They're a special breed, you know, most of whom continued helping in various ways after leaving us. Indeed, many of our helpers were truly outstanding people and all truly had their hearts in the work. Then, of course, there was my beloved Henrietta, my first wife. For all the years of my labors, she served with me full time. With no children of our own, we tried to adopt children, but the Lord closed the doors, and later we understood. And for more than 35 years, she served full time without any remuneration, although our board was most concerned and thoughtful about this. It was her own doing. She just loved to help as she could in the work. <clears throat> After Henriette had been gone for about five years, I married Ruth Wallstrom, and in this way she was just the same. She's all sunshine and doesn't want a thing, just wants to help and be blessed and used of the Lord. Pastor Richard Jordan of Mobile, Alabama, who has been with us about five years now, is my beloved co-worker and has become my successor as president of Berean Bible Society. Do pray much that God will prepare him well to eventually take over the whole ministry, including the Berean searchlight, all the broadcasts, and so on, and that he'll make the most of the gifts of preaching and writing which are in him, as Paul puts it to Timothy. Time has forbidden relating many more interesting experiences. My youthful stealing spree, and how the word convicted me and stopped it abruptly. Uh, Dad had asked Mother to read the Ten Commandments at the table. He said, we haven't read them for so long. She did. And she hesitated when she got to the words, Thou shalt not steal, while Dad took his time to look us all over very deliberately. <laughs> that did it. That temptation was gone. And how graciously God led me through 
what the hymn writer calls the slippery paths of youth and led me up to man. And some of my choicest sermon bloopers, I've made some bad ones. And how Dad, after holding a meeting at Passaic County Jail, went home with the keys of the boys' department in his pocket. They had really trusted him. I haven't said how there were three major theological battles in which I've been engaged. First, I got into the tail end of the great battle that waged for years over the rapture, the coming of Christ for his own, which we contended will take place before the millennium, not during or after. In those days, you were either a pre- or a post-millennialist, that is. Then there was the battle over baptism and the Great Commission in the recovery of what Paul calls the mystery. This is still being recovered, and it has great resistance. And finally, we had to take a stand against the gross departures of the word in GGF and its school, Grace Bible College. That was the saddest. However, all this is to be found in our book, so I haven't dealt with the details uh, of these battles here. But I do rejoice in the assurance that each of these controversies was, in the words of Paul, a good fight. Not that we necessarily fought uh, perfectly or even so well, but that they were fought in defense of the truth of God or of its propagation. They were good, wholesome, proper fights, if you please. Well, there's much, much more to tell, but the truly great thing to me is how God has blessed the teaching of His Word, and what a rare privilege it has been to have a part in this. And now, in our closing years, Ruth and I keep listening for the shout, and we sing with Francis Bevan, He and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share. Mine to be forever with him. His that I am there. For remember, he loves us far more than we will ever, ever love him. Thanks for listening, and God bless you each one.